was born. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode 9. Thanks a lot for joining us in the Cubbyhole this week. We hope you're all very well in this ever-changing world in which we're living. It's been a pleasure bringing you our interviews with Bond fans and alumni during this series, and we certainly hope it's been a pleasure listening to them as well. Don't forget, Series 1 is also still available, in which we reviewed every Bond film so you don't have to in the case of Casino Royale 67. Uh, Please do check those out if you missed any of them the first time around. You can find us on all good podcasting apps and websites. And as ever, we're very grateful for any feedback. As you can imagine, there's uh, no real financial reward of this podcast. Truman Lodge would be outraged, but we, we feel like the elephant playing the slot machines in Diamonds Are Forever, knowing that our Bond ramblings have put a smile on your face. And I'm sure you know by now, we do also love interacting with you on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for show updates. You can also submit your ideas and questions via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our last episode, we spoke to Nicholas Sushik about the enduring legacy of Pierce Brosnan's first Bond adventure, GoldenEye. We ranked our 007 best finales of the franchise, and Phil revealed his oddly plausible theory that Raoul Silva and Alec Trevelyan share a shadowy, hidden connection. And talking of connections, let's link up with the usual hosting team. Firstly, he's the General Oromov to my General Mishkin. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Very well, thanks, Martin. Um, What did you say I'm Oromov? I'm not sure I'm... I could carry off his level of uh, of campness. Well, well, if you want to be Mishkin, that's of course played by Checky Cario, who uh, now is known as the sort of philosophizing French detective of uh, the missing and Baptiste. So you either have to be very camp and Russian, or you have to be very French and philosophical. So I guess it's choose your poison. Yeah, I'm probably better being camp and Russian, aren't I? Really, that's probably the better option. Every week we always go through our kind of shout outs. Just to say thank you to Steve Holmes on Facebook for your follow, and to Panther Darts, Brian Shades, Fox Cooper, Reverend Robin Young, Richie Griswold, uh, the Republic of Ismus, Nelson Delone, Francesco Allegrini, and Os Jones for all your follows. Uh, did you also mention that the Reverend Robin Young was following us now? Does she conduct the ceremonies in the flower shop of? Uh, of- for your eyes only i mean i assume i'm not actually sure if it is genuinely robin young you know if if you are robin young you know let us know and, and get in touch with us oh, oh yeah if it is robin young from for your eyes only please do get in touch we love talking for your eyes only and then we'd love to chat it through with you uh, or alternatively you could give us our own roger moore's could be whole blessing i'm not entirely sure what robin young would have on under the cassock though and secondly he's the general all of to my general gogol it's adam how are you, Adam? And tomorrow I shall be a hero of the Soviet Union. I've got to be a bit bolder if I'm going to try that. I'm very good, thank you. Have you both seen it? Have you both seen the original new Bond film released last week? It's the comic relief sketch where Daniel Craig's 007 interacts with Catherine Tate's foul-mouthed nan. I, I have watched it. 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're starving for content, aren't we, as Bond fans? And it's just a little depressing that we've got Nan versus James Bond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, spoiler alert, it ends with uh, James Bond saying the, the classic Nan line, oh, what an effing liberty. And as he delivers it, Daniel Craig sort of turns away from the laptop screen he's being filmed on and gives the biggest grimace out of character that you've ever seen. So, so even he is kind of acknowledging the true ridiculousness of the whole enterprise. Also, where does it fit into the Bond chronology is is this sort of meant to be between spectre and, and no time to die but you know he's already done no time to die we just haven't seen it so is this post no time to die so is this actually his final bond film i'm seeing somebody right now thank you very much mm. she is a doctor no well tell her to be on her toes because let's face it every time you entertain someone in a bedroom department next day wallop they're dead can you just stop talking please so let's begin our show with the first segment on the scene where we examine a memorable moment from the Bond franchise. And this week, it's actually going to be a collection of scenes, the action-packed time that Bond spends in the beautiful city of Rome in Spectre. But uh, first, if you need a refresher as to what happens, I know just the man who can help. It's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. Fresh from bonking off with Italy's hottest widow, Monica Bellucci, Bond goes to the eyes wide shut sex mansion and Italians his way past son of Sandor. He stands on the cheap seat balcony as a godfather meets Eurovision consortium sit and nat around the biggest table of all time. Then everyone goes quiet when a massive door opens and a tiny man wanders in. Don't let me interrupt you. They talk in gibberish about bumping off some ghost lord. Then a wrestler in a tight suit does a Game of Thrones on a random dude's eyes, and the tiny man finally turns his light on. Welcome, James. It's been a long time. But finally, here we are. Cuckoo. Bond chucks Son of Sandor off the balcony and legs it to his Aston. But that bloody tight-suited wrestler follows in a jag, the car of choice for bastards. They Tokyo drift round Rome for bloody ages because none of Bond's gadgets work and some Muppets left Smooth FM on the radio. Then he gets stuck behind a dozy old geezer in a Fiat. Bond interrupts Money Penny's booty call, who tells him the Pale King's that bloke from two films ago we'd all forgotten about. Once he's taken in every single Roman landmark possible, Bond does a massive ejection and ditches Specky Four IQ's rubbish Aston in the drink. Serves him right. The end. So uh, this one, Spectre, of course, very divisive film. For us, it's a, it's a very decent entry into the Bond franchise, but for, for others, uh, not so much. Uh, but I think the cinematography of all of these scenes that we get in Rome is just phenomenal, isn't it? The uh, Especially the car chase for me. I'd like to focus on that one. I, I love the the humor of the scene that we get, of course, with the, uh, the music playing, the old man, uh, the banter even that we get with Moneypenny over the phone. It feels quite Roger Moore, but maybe not not too over the top. It doesn't distract from the uh, the real and present danger of uh, Mr. Hinks. And uh, I think similar to the the scene that we looked at from our previous episode, I think the, the music also helps build the suspense in this one as well, uh, as well as the lighting. It's quite good that the chase happens in darkness, but you kind of get that golden glow, don't you, from the, the street lamps. And I think it plays on the expectations of the audience as well. I quite like that, uh, of course, the Craig era very stripped back in terms of the gadgets. So I like how they, uh, they play with that, the fact that the DB10 is equipped with all these weapons that then Craig can't use. So it's like he... The producers are teasing him. He wants to be a bit more like Roger Moore, but uh, no, he's he's stuck in the in the Craig era. 
Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I think this is a fantastic sequence that we get in Rome. Um, and it's probably one of the best of the entire film. You know, as you've mentioned, kind of the cinematography is so so rich and so vibrant. I've I've often been a critic of Christoph Waltz, but in this scene, he is terrifying. You know, there's there's so much subtle aggression that is there, and there's so much terror that's there. And it and it, all he says is a couple of lines, and it's you know, it's it's kind of you don't know where it's going and that's kind of why it's so scary kind of reminiscent of films like from Russia with love it's very reminiscent of films like for your eyes only as well i think that's a really key point yeah it, it's the classiness the artiness of the daniel craig era but it's married back to a much more traditional bond film those key tenets of action humor and spectacle uh, and that in a nutshell is why i really rate spectre very highly i think it gets that very well uh, and I love how Spectre's been reimagined in this, almost as like a sort of version of the Bilderberg group. You get the extreme opulence and internationalism of them. It's much more realistic and sort of in the open, weirdly, even though it is shadowy than the 60s one, when they're in a sort of French building, but they're kind of behind a bookcase and all the rest of it. Here, these they've just gathered at a big mansion. They've got all these crazy luxury cars in the courtyard, and yet no one's bothering them. And just the theatre and the drama and the mystery of it as well. The, the meeting has these very elaborate rules where, you know, that you can challenge someone to the death to take their place. Everyone has to walk up to Blofeld and whisper in his ear and, you know, things like that. And whoever designed that set is an absolute genius because it's so elegant and it's so immersive. But yet it's also there's, you know, you get that sense of the classical beauty of it, but also the there is that sinister undertone. Yeah, I quite like how we get the mixture of the the shadowy Blofeld, don't we, at the beginning, harking back to the uh, the very first Bond films, but then... Of course, nowadays, it's probably that the fans, the audience want to see Blofeld as well. So it's a nice mixture of of the two kind of Blofelds, the, the shadowy sinister and then actually seeing his face as well. Good old stuntman Dave Cronley. Um, I think the uh, the organ I agree with what you said, Adam, about the this feels like a real organization as well, doesn't it? Sometimes in the even the better older Bond films, the Blofeld scenes, the meeting room seems a little bit comical. All of these individual characters being taken out by Blofeld if they uh, do an incompetent job, which inevitably they do. Uh, but this one feels a lot larger, a lot grander in scale. Yeah, and everything's geared around that central figure of Blofeld, who is truly omnipotent and omniscient in this. I mean, just the terror, the pall of terror that settles over the room when he walks in, which is, of course, relieved by that very mild line delivery. But the whole scene is really slow really tends to get that sense of fear and then at the end of it he knows exactly where bond is hiding and this properly spooks bond for the first time in, in a long time not just that his cover has been totally blown and he's been eyeballed on even though he thinks he's hidden in the balcony the fact that it's this spectral figure from his childhood too seemingly back from the dead but he must not know what's happening here he thinks he's in the sixth sense at this point I think we also need to give a shout out to Dave Bautista as Hinks in this sequence as well, just because, again, it's that sort of physical presence that we've seen before with the likes of Jaws and the likes of Odd Job. But in this one, it's, it's even more sort of brutal because of the fact he, he doesn't say anything at all. He just sort of wanders in. And obviously we get the very violent way that he um, sort of pushes his his thumb uh, spikes, I guess you'd call them, into the, the man's eyes and then also just kind of kills him with kind of one blow. Yeah, the uh, the terror comes from Blofeld, but then the actual violence itself 
as as ever with Bond comes from the henchman. Uh, I quite like that the the guy he replaces, the guy he kills, looks a little bit similar to the Dominic Green character that we got previously in Quantum of Solace, that kind of slimy, Nicolas Sarkozy, Tony Blair style character. Uh, so it's almost as if they're saying, yeah, we've got rid of that style of Quantum of Solace. Now let's get to a, to a proper Bond film. Yeah, we've truly cut off the tentacle that was Quantum. Uh, he's great, isn't he? He's kind of the, the classic silent imposing assassin, but he's kind of designed by Armani. He's got this very swish suit and, and of course, the fancy car. So he feels and looks the part of this much more kind of opulent, wealthy conspiracy almost. Um, his reaction work is great as well, Batista. the way that he just sort of very coldly looks at the blood on his hands after he's done the eye gouging and sort of plucks a handkerchief out and just dusts himself off afterwards. It's really lovely and cruel and cold. We should say another little bit on the car chase because it, it is sort of a, a pursuit of pure driving like we saw in kind of the great Remy Julianne uh, overseen Bond stunt works. You know, it really shows off both the vehicles and Rome itself at night. Yeah, absolutely. And when we reviewed Spectre, I, I, I kind of waxed lyrical about this scene because again, they had to get permission to actually film in Vatican City to drive past the Vatican. It was um, former British rally champion Mark Higgins who was driving the um, the Aston Martin um, and Ben Collins the former Stig who was driving the um, the Jaguar so between them also you get that that real sense of driving skill you know the fact that they're doing full-on opposite lock power slides around you know cobbled streets and they're, they're kind of going through very narrow courtyards um, in you know Aston Martins and Jaguars which are extremely wide and you know there's there's barely enough room for them to fit and it's just, you know, in terms of driving skills, that is one of probably one of the best pieces of stunt work in the entire franchise. Yeah, and as Martin said before, the comedy of it just makes it, and it's so surprising from a Craig film, which we sort of see as being very serious and, and very intellectual almost. The fact that Moneypenny's actually um, in bed with someone, it's like, wow, we, we've never seen that before. She's normally crying to Barry Manilow when Bond's away. Based on what we know, though, about 009, i.e. loves an Aston Martin, loves a bit of Frank Sinatra, probably a smooth and dapper chap. Is 009, in fact, the Canadian crooner Michael Bublé? I mean, I really hope not, because Michael Bublé is a terrible, terrible musician and I can't stand him, but... Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't stand Michael Bublé. He's amazing. He should do the next Bond theme. That's a terrible idea. No, it's not. He'd do a really good one. It'd be a proper classic big band Bond theme. All he can do is Christmas albums. That's He's a one-trick pony. That's all he can do. A Christmas Bond film. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, get Denise Richards back as well. This is a genuinely very good idea we've come up with here. It's the James Bond Christmas special. It'll be better than that Star Wars one when it's just a load of Wookiees growling at each other. It's Michael Bublé as Bond. It's like a musical. You get Denise Richards back in set it back in uh, the village where they filmed Donna Majesties. It's a brilliant idea. What's wrong about you? Yeah, how so? I thought Christmas only comes once a year. So, on to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. Who joined us this time, Adam? It is British special effects maestro John Richardson. He really made a name for himself doing the effects for the horror classic The Omen uh, and won an Oscar later on for his work on James Cameron's Aliens. Uh, but key to us, he worked on quite a lot of Bond films. Uh, he goes back to the Roger Moore era and spans the Pierce Brosnan era as well. So, let's go over and have a chat to John Richardson. I grew up with films um, with, with my father um, and then went to see Dr. No when it first came out, which I loved. You know, the, the first couple of Bonds are still 
some of the most exciting for me. And, you know, it was at a time when I was just starting to work in the industry. So, you know, I was getting to know all the people involved and who did what. And uh, it, it sort of went on from there. And, you know, if, you, if you're an effects man and, and you're watching Bond movies, you're sort of itching to do one yourself. Um, and, of course, my first foray into Bonds was the the Casino Royale with Woody Allen, David Niven. And, you know, I was on that for about a year, but it, I mean, it was such a, a disjointed production. We, we filmed in four different studios, seven different directors, four different James Bonds, uh, and, and lots of lovely Bond girls, including Ursula. That um, was an experience, that film. It, it was, uh, I say, very disjointed. I used to get up in the morning and um, struggle to remember which studio to go to today. Yeah, and then I, you know, carried on with my career um, for a few years until um, Moonraker um, and took over all the filming in, in South America and um, North America, um, which was, you know, a lot of fun. And then I missed one or two out and then was asked to come back on Octopussy I think I, I ended up with nine James Bonds to my credit. Uh, just because you mentioned him, I wanted to quickly ask about your father, Cliff Richardson, who was very much a pioneer of, of special effects in, in, in British cinema. Um, and you started your career as his assistant. What would you say were the key films that you worked on together? You know, my father taught me pretty much everything about effects that he knew. And of course, going back to those early days, Budgets were, were much, much lower. You had to be far more in, inventive with what you did. I mean, I, I did a picture in the early 70s called The Omen. I think my entire budget for the film was, in, including all the labour, effects, transport, everything, £24,000. You know, you, you add up, we, we did Storms, Lightning, explosions we made mechanical dogs skeletons uh, uh chopped off heads all for that you know very low budget so it, it put me in very good stead for the rest of my career because you know this was way before star wars um and way before film companies decided to um, throw money at the, the effects side, which they do hand over fist now, not not always to good effect. But um, I like to think that the, the bonds that we did in the 80s and 90s have a reality to them, which uh, is sadly lacking in many movies today. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned earlier the mess of production that was the Casino Royale, nineteen sixty seven. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about blowing bubbles onto Ursula Endress and and blowing up Orson Welles? Well, we we um, it was such a a long production. I mean, I was only oh, was I twenty one, twenty twenty one then. The task for a young twenty year old was to create the bubbles in Ursula Andress's bath, which she got in and out of 
in, in not much more than a brief pair of knickers. Um, and being the man making the bubbles between her legs, it was, it was quite an adventure for a 20-year-old. And, you know, one of the other things uh, I had to do was um, blow up the, the villain's lair uh, played by Orson Welles who, of course, was a very big star back then. Anyway, this particular day, I had to create all these sparks and flashes and flames in, in on the console that Orson Welles was sitting at. And he came on the set, and I ran through with him what was going to happen, where it was going to happen. And I said, when you fall forward, whatever you do, don't put your hand there or there. Um, and of course, he's an actor. What did he do? He put his hand right next to two small charges, one of which burnt his hand. Uh, and he, he stood up and called me all sorts of rude names and stomped off the set. Anyway, we, we had to re-reek, so I re-reeked it all exactly the same way. Olsen came back on the set and much to my amazement, he called all the unit to attention and said, um, I owe this young man an apology. It, it wasn't his fault, it was mine. And I thought any actor that can come on a set and do that for a, a young kid is um, not bad in my book. So he went up enormously. When you work on the Bond series proper, you mentioned with Moonraker working uh, in South America on that, that great Amazon boat chase. Uh, what are your memories of sort of making that sequence work and I guess of being in that location? I mean, it's quite incredible. When I started, I went out to Iguazu with Ernie Day, the um, second unit director, uh, to have a look at it. And the river was a, a raging torrent going over the, over the fall. And of course, they wanted the boat practically out in the middle of the falls to fly over the top. I was, I was honest. I said I didn't think it would work because I thought the boat would get jammed on a rock. But as they'd committed to everything now, um, I was quite happy to give it a go. When we got out there, they gave me a squad of Brazilian army guys, privates, who were going to get in the water with us and help us. And our plan was to go in the water two or three hundred yards upstream of the edge of the fall with the boat, which weighed a couple of tons probably. And then we were going to rope ourselves together and go from rock to rock out across the falls. I mean, bearing in mind you know, one minute you're up to your chest in water, the next minute it's over your head. We got out into the middle and it, it was very hard going. And I looked at the uh, the Brazilian army guys and they were absolutely terrified. And uh, we went in that night and I told the production that I wasn't prepared to use those guys anymore because... We were getting paid for it and they weren't, they didn't have any choice and I didn't think it was fair. So it ended up with one of my top guys, Johnny Morris and I, roped together and we went in the water, I think, at about seven o'clock in the morning. We didn't get out till five o'clock that night 
we didn't have any drinks and rode together. We, we went from rock to rock, hauling the boat with us. And then we got it lined up with the spot where they wanted it to go over the edge. And all the cameras were in position. And the moment came and we released the boat and the boat went and jammed on a rock, literally two feet from the edge of the, of the fall. How are you going to get rid of it? They said, looking at me. Knowing we had a helicopter there, I suggested that the helicopter flies out with me in it. They got a winch on the helicopter. And they winch me down onto the boat and I'll stand on the rock that the boat's jammed on and try and push it over. And I think they dropped me in the water two or three times and in the bushes a couple of times. Anyway, eventually I got hold of the, the prow of the boat and the helicopter starts flying away really fiercely. I mean, you could hear the, the rotors biting into the air. Um, and he's out over the edge of the fall. My arms are getting longer and longer by the second. And all of a sudden, all I could hear was this strange ping, 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 ping noise. It was the stitches breaking in my harness. So I had to make a very quick decision. Do I stay with the, with the boat until all the stitches go? Or do I let go now and hope there's enough left to hang on? So in the end, I let go. Was that sort of the, your closest shave when you were working on the bomb films? Or did you have any other kind of experiences where you thought, blimey, that was close? Or, you know, where you were... Um, I, I never had any scary moments on Bonds. I mean, other than directing all the shooting on the Golden Gate Bridge on A View to a Kill um, was quite leery because we, we went up to the top of the Golden Gate Bridge and I had to set a Vista Vision camera up 100 feet down one of the main cables. Um, so we built a little wooden platform that we could ratchet strap on. The, the cable itself was three foot diameter and the handrails on it were way up there. So between there and there, it was nothing and you've got that much to walk on. The, the funny thing was I had a helicopter cameraman with me because I was doing all the helicopter shooting as well. I took him up to the top of the golden, to the top of the bridge um, before we started just to show him what we had to do and uh, to get up there you had to get in a little lift that was two foot square three of you jammed in it um, and you get up to the top takes seven minutes to go up there bearing in mind you're in a, in a metal coffin in earthquake country and then you come out on top um, and it's like the world with a fisheye lens I mean there's nothing around it's just horizon and um, I remember I got up and got out there first and the helicopter cameraman followed me out and I, I looked at his eyes as he got out and, and he was terrified I mean he'd sit all day long on the skid of a helicopter but to stand on something on land with height terrified him the bridge is covered in dew, um, so the cable's very slippery. You know, when a lorry drives over the bridge, the cable bounces. N not one of my happiest moments being, being up there. 
You've already mentioned a couple of the, the amazing locations you sort of travelled to around the world working on the Bond films. Uh, do any stand out as being particular favourites? Are there ones where you, you just sort of, I guess, off camera really enjoyed being at? Most of them, in, in reality. I really enjoyed the Bahamas on um, The World Is Not Enough because I had my own unit out there. We had our own boat. You know, we're diving in the Caribbean, um, albeit on right on the edge of the Atlantic drop-off. Um, you know, we've got a 60-foot-long model submarine to play with. Um, and, you know, I enjoyed that enormously. But then I enjoyed all of the, the model shoots I did on the bombs because they were all challenging. But... Um, you know, a lot of fun to do and a, a bit of a sense of achievement afterwards. The Bond team were a family. And although people used to come and go, Cubby was such a, a wonderful producer. And, um, you know, you, you felt he, his friendship almost. And, you know, when, when we were in... Uh, Austria uh, on the living daylights again shooting up in the snow you know we used to go out for dinner at night with, with Cubby and Barbara and you know he, he was such a wonderful raconteur and the stories he told um, you know it was a real privilege to be there uh, yeah, that kind of echoes many of the words uh, our other guests that Bond is kind yeah. of this uh, this family. Uh, well, I guess we were going to also ask you about the the Living Daylights. There's that really impressive bridge explosion. Was that one quite a complex one to do? Well, the, I mean, the best part of of the bridge to me is that the uh, the bridge didn't really exist. Um, we'd gone out to Morocco and, and found the location. Um, and it was a concrete bridge that stood 10 feet off a dry, muddy. Um, um, you know, it was very uninteresting for anything to fall off it. It just go splat in the dry mud. So we wanted to make the bridge look, you know, several hundred feet high. So I found a spot out there where we could set up a, a, a camera and do a foreground miniature. So we, we designed and built a foreground miniature to scale back in Pinewood, uh, took it out to Morocco and set it up. And the idea was that um, we'd see all the tanks and the horsemen riding over the, over the bridge, but everything from the bridge handrail down was foreground miniature. Um, and I don't think very many people who saw the film ever realised that. You know, you, you've got the benefit of real explosions, real horsemen, real tanks, real explosions all above the bridge level. Um, and everything below was a little model. All those different elements, the, the challenge is to make them all match um, into a, a believable scene. One of the best sequences I think I've ever been involved in was Octopussy, um, where you've got the opening sequence with the BD jet flying through the hangar. 
um, and the BD jet chase by a missile. I mean, all that was was in camera models. A, a BD jet full size built on a pole arm, 12 feet up in the air over a Jaguar car with a top cut off. Um, and I drove it through the hangar at about 75 miles an hour and out through the doors as the stuntmen closed them. It told the whole scene using every effects trick in the book that you know you could come up with. Um, I know your last Bond film was, was Die Another Day, which, which is sometimes criticised for the sort of overuse of, of CGI on the other, the other side of it. Is that a frustration you, you shared? Did, were you aware at the time that perhaps you were edging away from you know, the effects work that you, you really adored in them? I shared it with a lot of people at the time. Everything from the, the invisible car to the that awful wave with the um, surfer uh, Bond surfing on it. A bunch of us knew that that was never going to look real. I, I also personally had a problem with the ice palace because, you know, I've always said if something can exist in reality, then you can do a model of it and make it look real. If something can't exist for real, it's bloody difficult to make it look real, even with a model. And I can remember taking Lee Tamahori up and showing him the, the model of the ice castle. I said, you know, I don't know what to do with it. I really don't because uh, it just physically, it looks wrong. You, you work with kind of three Bond acts as well, obviously Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton and, and Pierce Brosnan. Was it, was it quite interesting to work with them? Obviously, they're quite different characters, um, particularly as actors as well. They were all fun. Um, they were all nice. I, I also worked with Sean, but not on a Bond film. I did a couple of film films with him. Roger, of course, was lovely. He got a great sense of humour. You know, we, we used to do practical jokes and, uh, you know, I even crawled out of the, the jungle dressed in a gorilla suit on one scene on Octopussy um, just to give him a start. No, Rod, Roger was great and great fun. Tim was lovely, very down to earth. I mean, we used to go out for dinner a lot in Mexico and um, he became, a, well, he was a friend to everybody. Very unassuming, um, great to work with. I, you know, directed him on a few little scenes and he was very easy to, to get on with. And I think could have been a very good bond if, if he'd had a, a bond that was written for his type of character. But I don't think he got a fair crack of the whip uh, in terms of storyline for him anyway. And Pierce was was lovely. He, he, he was never my favourite Bond, but then I think Sean always was as, as a Bond character, but I'm of that age group, so I can say that. Certainly my all-time favourites is obviously the Aston Martin from The Living Daylights and um, sort of the iconic chase through the mountains um, between the police. Was, was that quite a tricky sequence to film? Yeah, I mean, it, as always with those scenes, it, it's um, when you read the script, um, the blood tends to drain from the face sometimes. And then once you start to break it down, you know, you've got a cut of this, which is the thing coming out of the wheel. You've got a cut of that. And... Once they're broken down, you, you end up with 
four different cars, each one achieves one certain specific thing. So, you know, we had the one to drive across the lake. Well, you know, we put studded tyres on it. We put skis on it. Um, that one were, had fixed skis. We had another one that was rigged to see the skis come out. We had another one rigged on a cannon to fire over the the dam. Um, you know, one, one of the, the trickier scenes in that was where the car fires the rockets at the truck that's blocking the road. You couldn't free fire the rockets because there were people around. You had to be deadly accurate with the rockets so they hit the right place on the side of the truck, which meant you had to fire them down wires. But you couldn't put the wires on the car where they were coming from because the car was moving. So um, I devised a way of doing it where we fixed the wires off way back up the road and then we drove the car over the top of the wires up towards the truck. Um, and as the car reached the point where the, the rockets were on the wires, we ignited the rockets so that you saw them fly away and, and you know, you didn't for one second question that they didn't come out of the front of the car. Uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about working with Cubby, uh, and and of course also you were working on the Bond films when Barbara Broccoli and, and Michael G. Wilson took mm -hmm. over. Um, were they very different in, in their producing styles? Nobody could approach Cubby. Cubby used to, we used to have big meetings and we'd all sit in a room and you'd get the you know, usual round and round and 300 different ideas. And, and Cubby used to sit very quietly at the back and then all of a sudden Cubby would say, you know what, guys? That's what we'll do. And and that was all you needed because once Cubby said that, there was no argument, no discussion. Everybody accepted it. And Cubby was pretty much always right. Barbara has, has been a great friend for many years. Um, you know, we used to have dinner a lot and She's a great producer and, and she worked with her dad for many years. She, she knows what she's doing. And Michael, again, it is lovely. He's, he's, I've known Michael for, well, more years than I can remember. And, you know, between the two of them, they, they were a great team. And, you know, the, the family atmosphere stayed on you know, after Cubby, and has always been there on the Bond movies. That's the great thing about that setup, and it comes from Broccoli and his Cubby and his family. So that was John Richardson. Great to hear about the uh, the kind of differences that he faced in uh, filming the the model version, and then dealing with the real life location as well, and they're kind of making that transition seamless between the two particularly good on the living daylights but uh, yeah great uh, great to hear from john yeah he's fantastic a, a real legend actually of british special effects i mean he worked on all of the harry potter films as well doing the practical effects and it's very true what he says about 
when you do practical effects properly, they age incredibly well and they just serve to make the film so much more believable and exciting. Yeah, very intriguing as well to hear his thoughts on Die Another Day. Of course, not the most popular, but uh, good to know that he had some kind of uh, inkling that maybe it wasn't the best, <laughs> the best Bond film. I see you handle your weapon well. I have been known to keep my tip up. Do you mind? I think I've come undone. Why not? So next up is the 007 best segment in which we rank the seven best in any given Bond category. This week, we turn our attention to the vehicles of Bond, specifically the non-car vehicles. So which do we consider the best? Let's dive right in with number seven. So in at number seven, we have Max Zorin's blimp from A View to a Kill. Of course, this is the one that he kidnapped Stacey Sutton and has that rather comical fight on the Golden Gate Bridge with Bond before it then explodes um, with the Acne Dynamite. So um, one, one of the more comedy vehicles that we kind of see in the franchise. Yeah, utterly ridiculous, this one. Completely outlandish. I'd be interested to know if there's any other film in which someone's been kidnapped by a blimp. How does Stacey Sutton not see it or hear it? Doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it must be the quietest vehicle in the world. Also, how did they manage to park it in that very tiny sort of hut that is kind of outside the mine that they've all, uh, you know, driven into? It does make me think that that must just be how they park it. And therefore, in the earlier scene, that great one when he's uh, unveiling his big model of Silicon Valley, going to flood it, going to get all the microchips, hoard them. Uh, this is maybe why Anthony Chin's Taiwanese tycoon is so shocked when he goes down the stairs and out of it. Because maybe they don't even know it's the blimp when they go in. They just walk into this room at the top of the building. They think it's a meeting room. And then the blimp just forms while they're in there. So they don't actually know they're in midair during this meeting. They're all sat there. Why are our ears popping? Are we just really high up? No, you're in a blimp, lads. You're in a blimp. He, he's very trusting of Mayday and Max Zorin. And the fact that he just says, yeah, no, I'll just leave this really dodgy meeting that's talking about murdering thousands of people and just, just go to get a drink. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's why Adam's theory makes sense. He just thinks he's still in the building. <laughs> that he has no idea he's up so high. And also that final sequence when he's escaping the mine, obviously he's now been foiled. His scheme has gone wrong and he has been unmasked as this sort of arch villain. So technically at this point, it's a getaway vehicle. It's got to be the worst getaway vehicle ever. It's massive. It's slow. Everyone can see it. And it's got his name on the side of it. And it does raise the question, what the hell is he going to do with that dynamite? Is that just to sort of throw it chasing police helicopters or something like that? Is that what he's going to use it for? Yeah, Dr. Herr Mortner is certainly not a health and safety advisor, is he? Do you think the real reason he wants to leave the meeting, Anthony Chin, uh, is that he's seen the dynamite fridge at the back of it and he's seen that there's dynamite in it and he's thinking, I don't want to be on here anymore. There's a stick of dynamite in this fridge at the back. Number six. So in at number six is the tuk-tuk from Octopussy. So I guess we were high on the experience of having the interview with VJ because uh, the tuk-tuk has somehow managed to uh, to make the list here. I mean, it is quite a good vehicle, different from the, the car chasers that we would usually get, uh, the, the souped-up three-wheeler that they didn't have in India. And uh, yeah, I think it, it plays a, a nice role, doesn't it, in that action sequence. Of course, the, the tennis jokes are a bit corny, but we uh, we do love them. Yeah, I was going to say, well, so I think VJ had a lot of great anecdotes about having to drive the tuk-tuk and obviously how challenging and, and exciting it could be. Of course, when we, we did our Octopussy review in season one, um, we looked back at the fact that it was kind of a motorbike chassis and engine kind of mounted onto a, a tuk-tuk shell. So it's, it's a sense of, you know, it's kind of quite a powerful vehicle, really. And, and the fact that it was, 
it took everyone by surprise. Yeah, it's a very clever use of a culturally appropriate vehicle in a slightly culturally inappropriate chase. I mean, there's a bit of brown face nonsense going on in the midst of that with like, you know, beds of nails and sword swallowers. Uh, but it combines a lot of really ingenious elements which serve the action scene, isn't it? The fact that it's very fast. So you've got the speed going on. You've got the comedy of it being absolutely tiny and Roger and BJ are both having to sort of crouch on it. And also the fact that it's so open and very exposed to the enemy. It ups the danger factor of the scene as well. I mean, I still love the crowd in this scene where they, they sort of look from side to side as, as uh, VJ hits the henchman with his tennis racket. I still think that is that is perhaps one of the best uh, James Bond jokes of them all, I think. I can't remember if we mentioned this. Certainly we didn't mention it to VJ. We forgot to. I think there's in the scene, there's just a random guy in riding a bicycle who goes between the tuk-tuk and the villain vehicle which was completely unplanned. It was just a normal guy who'd got in the way of the scene. Uh, I love also that Bond's backgammon winnings managed to save him twice in this scene, these big wads of cash. First, they sort of stop him getting stabbed, uh, you know, through the heart, and then he uses it to slow the villain down by showering it. Do you think he's, he's learned his lesson from the Casino Royale torture scene at this point? And he was just thinking, well, actually, if I'd have just cashed out and then stuffed all that cash down my pants, I wouldn't have suffered from that carpet beater slash that knotted rope. Yeah, but the only trouble with that theory, Adam, is the fact that they take his pants off in Casino Royale. So unless he sort of strapped his winnings to his scrotum, I don't think that would have saved him. Well, thanks for that image, Phil. You know that Sean Connery has at some point to sneak it past customs, attach some cash to his scrotum. Number five. Uh, and at number five, it is the Bondola from Moonraker. Uh, once again, like took took a great use of a, a vehicle appropriate to the Venice canals and the setting. We get that lovely moment of uh, the sort of comedy action of that funeral barge. Uh, that comes by where the coffin opens and it's some weird gangster with a Tommy gun. Uh, I mean, this is purely ridiculous comedy, uh, but I think it's still very memorable and it's incredibly entertaining nonetheless, isn't it? Yeah, I must admit, I didn't actually vote for this one in mind just because I always think of the Bondler as being a little bit too silly. But I, I do concede that, you know, it is it is one of the better points of Moonraker where it's, um, you know, it's kind of showing off Roger Moore's um, kind of quips and his uh, his penchant for the for the more comedy elements of of the Bond franchise. So it's there are some great little moments. Of course, the pigeon doing a double take, and then of course we get the uh, the holidaying man who was previously in the Spy who loved me who returns with his uh, bottle of wine that he's enjoying on the uh, on the palazzo. Yeah, I mean I'll pick you up on one thing, Phil. It's not one of the better points of Moonraker. I'd say it's one of the worst points, but that's why I like it because it is just so stupid. It kind of encapsulates everything that uh, that Rogers Bond portrays in the film: a spy supposed to be a, a secretive man who is uh, who's going around on land in a, in a water vehicle, just utterly, utterly bizarre and stupid, but <laughs> but brilliant as well. I've always wondered how he actually gets off St. Mark's Square after he's inflated the bondola, because the streets of Venice are incredibly tiny. There's no way he's getting through them on that. So presumably, after the cameras have stopped rolling, he's just kept driving around St. Mark's Square in ever-increasing circles, waiting for a moment where he can sort of deflate it and go back on the canals again. <laughs> In at number four, we have the T-55 tank, of course, the iconic St. Petersburg chase. Again, one of the most memorable and um, and 
one of the the most technically challenging um, in terms of stunt work. Of course, we had that great chat with our in our interview with Jim Dowdle, where he obviously mentioned having to source the tank and obviously um, to modify it so they could fit the camera kit to it as well. So, and just just the technical challenges of having to kind of power slide a tank through narrow streets as well. Yeah, for me, this one's one of the best vehicles I think we've seen in Bond. Matches really well with uh, with Brosnan's new era, trying to reinvent the whole series. How do they do that? Will they they try and do something they've never done before with all those technical challenges that we heard about? The, the end result being phenomenal, I think. Lots of different scenes uh, and challenges as well in the location. So they had to do some of the uh, the work in the studio um, and on location as well. So uh, yeah, excellent uh, excellent vehicle to uh, to introduce us to the the cool Brosnan character. To be controversial, though, is it even the best vehicle in Goldeneye that's non-car? I mean, you know, let's think about the Eurocopter, Tiger, you know, Chopper, and that amazing sequence where him and uh, Natalia are trapped in it, the missiles are coming back at them, and he's got to sort of headbutt the ejector in time. I mean, that's a wonderful scene. Also, we should not forget the Tour de France cyclist who brings down the entire fleet of bikers on that mountain pass while Serena Gordon's talking gibberish in the car with Bond. Yeah, but again, I've mentioned my issues with that opening sequence. The fact that, uh, you know, you've got a 60s Aston Martin versus a 90s Ferrari and and the, the fact that they can keep up with each other is completely devoid of reality. I think the tank also takes out uh, Trevelyan's stealth train as well, which when you think about it is quite interesting because it works as a very brilliant, as a perfect secret way for him to cross Russia. But it's very similar to what Tiger Tanaka has got set up in Japan in terms of getting around secretly. So it does, the, it does beg the question, did 006, when he was 006, also know Tiger Tanaka? Did he have a mission in Japan as well? And is there an unrealized prequel film where it's Sean Bean as 006 in Japan? <laughs> hey, when Bond came, you took him to that bathhouse. I want to go there too. Well, let's not forget, of course, Alec Trevelyan is technically born in, you'd imagine, born in 1945. So he, he would have been about, you know, 21, 22 when, when You Only Live Twice kind of came out. So he would have been optimum age for MI6 to be training him as a double O agent. So it stands to reason that he has met Tiger. Yeah, both of you are really pushing for this, uh, the Sean Bean 006 spin-off series, aren't you? <laughs> he's not going to do it, guys. Maybe he's been to Japan first, and that's why Bond knows exactly what he's doing when he goes there and you only live twice. Now remember, when he offers you sake, make sure it's at 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit. He'll be right impressed. Number three. And in at number three... Uh, have another octopusy vehicle to introduce here is the Ekrastar that we get in the pre-title sequence. So this one, some incredible stunt work, mixture of uh, of on location actual flying of the plane which was incredible and uh, some model work as well as it goes through the giant hangar brilliant way to introduce the film i think there's many different elements that we uh, we've spoken about for octopussy all of them we we generally agree are great uh, but this one's a really entertaining way to start the film i quite like the the fact that bond is uh, doing a little bit of ridiculous undercover work as well in that pre-title sequence with that that mustache yeah th- this is kind of peak Roger Moore isn't it really the fact that it's that mix of absurdist um kind of undercover work as you say Martin where he's, he's got the sort of dodgy tash and he's the he's and obviously then you've got the horse box as well which is um clearly not a horse in the back and, and you know anybody observing would be able to see that straight away again we get a, a great little moment towards the end where um you know he just says fill her up at the at the um 
the petrol station. You get that great look of disbelief from the petrol attendant. Uh, also, just that barn flying stunt when the plane goes through it. It's absolutely fantastic. We've seen the rubbish version of this, which is Mrs. Bell's flying lesson in Live and Let Die when it just shears the wings off. This is how to do that stunt properly of a plane flying through a barn. Uh, you know, Octopussy much better than Live and Let Die, of course. We should get a cut. If, if Octopussy's had a rise in download and Blu-ray sales as a result of this podcast, we should definitely get a cut of that because I feel like we have elevated Octopussy onto the top pantheon of Bond films at this point. Number two. And in at number two, just missing out, is the cue boat from The World Is Not Enough. I mean, we, we know that Roger Moore loves a boat chase. This is a classic Moore boat chase, but with that sort of 90s Pierce Brosnan action epic sense to it. It's the longest opening sequence ever, but completely justifies itself. There's that brilliant use of London locations, you know, the Docklands settings that he weaves around, you know, those sort of fine dining restaurants that he blitzes through. Uh, and of course, that sort of mock heroic introduction of the then Millennium Dome, ironically, uh, before everyone went to see it and realised it was absolutely rubbish. Yeah, I also love the fact that this is kind of Q's retirement boat. I mean, God knows what he plans to do with this. I mean, I don't know if he's going to eliminate kind of his rivals when he's fishing or something like that. You know, he's going to just fire missiles at fish to, to try and blow them out of the water. But, um, you know, it seems it seems a bit overkill to have a jet-powered, um, you know, stealth boat almost that can go underwater. So, again, one of the great kind of Q branch inventions. Maybe he's going to have some competitions with R in retirement. And R's just there like... Don't disturb me, Q. I'm uh, I'm filming this cameo video. Because that is just what John Cleese does with his life now. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, presumably he's just going on some kind of crazed old man in the sea shark hunt with it. He can't just be doing normal fishing because it's a tiny boat. There's going to be no room for Q's tackle in that. Also, that line Q has, stop, stop, it isn't finished. Presumably he's referring to the fact that there's no windshield in it because Bronholm takes on an awful lot of water and splashback during this chase. But it's a miracle the boat doesn't sink the amount of water that's flying into it. The Millennium Dome, maybe they should have incorporated more Bond. You remember that they had a mediocre Blackadder scene, good old Nigel Smallforset, but I think they needed maybe to get to the Millennium Dome, maybe you should have gone through that sequence uh, and then you uh, you fall off a hot air balloon onto the, maybe they could have just made it a giant bouncy castle perhaps, that would have been more entertaining than what it actually was at the time. Also, if you look very closely at the opening titles of EastEnders, you can see the Q-boat just sort of driving down the river on it. We should also, as we mentioned in our review of The World Is Not Enough, before the boat chase, we get the most Taffin-esque moment uh, of Pierce Brosnan's tenure as Bond when he has he's trying to save Sir Robert King and he does that big stop number one. So mo moving swiftly on to our number one, you've you've probably already guessed um, what it's going to be. Of course, it is of course Little Nelly Q's kind of baby in terms of his own design work and kind of Tiger Tanaka is very um, disparaging of of British engineering, but it's um, you know very very cleverly done in terms of it's kind of all packed into a suitcase but then it's kind of a machine of destruction based on something that could actually be built in real life as well so you know really really clever work and really ingenious of of what q branch was going to build in the future and of course so memorable to so many fans yeah, i mean q is annoyed with with bond taking the q boat and i feel like this in you only live twice it's made more entertaining by the by the fact of how annoyed q is to be in japan and having to uh, to show bond and put the little nelly together quite interesting that we get that they kind of still images i think of little nelly and uh, kind of put together we don't really see that kind of uh, of scene do we 
uh, again in, in the films. But yeah, the actual, just a really impressive vehicle, I think, this one, and uh, quite good how it's shown off to beating the supposedly superior helicopters. Yeah, you're right to call attention to those sort of free strains, because of course we don't know, seeing it for the first time, that this is going to be a helicopter that's been brought over in a suitcase, and so it's teasing that mystery of what, you know, Little Nelly is actually going to be when completed. I mean, this is just a brilliant action sequence. It's still one of the best in the entire series. It's a triumph of, uh, you know, Lewis Gilbert's direction, Peter Hunt's editing, of course, Freddie Young's cinematography, and all the the second unit and the model crews as well. Um, It's kind of an extension, again, Bond was consistently getting bigger and better in these first films and it's kind of an extension of the jetpack gag isn't it almost you can almost imagine bond has gone back to q and complained about the noisiness of it the fact that it's got a limited range the fact that you can't really transport and leave it anywhere so q very angrily has designed a suitcase transportable helicopter to kind of get one over on bond yeah and i think importantly connery looks like he's having fun in that scene with little nelly uh, quite a rare glimpse of uh, of joy for, for sean in you only live twice yeah, I also love how Connery sort of seems to think Little Nelly's an actual person in this, keeps referring to her as she and Q as her father. And at the end of the sequence, he has that bit on the radio, well, she was aggressed by some bigger boys, but she defended her honour. He's, he's getting very paternal to this helicopter, isn't he? I mean, why is he so, so invested in her? Yeah, and also, where did the Little Nelly name come from? Is there just somebody in Q branch called Nelly that they just, they're just really fond of? So they just thought, yeah, we'll name the gyrocopter after this, you know, great employee in Q branch. Well, presumably it means that there is a huge helicopter called Big Nelly somewhere in Q branch. Yet to come in Bond 26. Hello, base one. Listening. Little Nelly got a hot reception. Four big shots made improper advances towards her. But she defended her honour with great success. Heading for home. And next we have the James Bond Film Club. Last week we heard about George Lazenby's adventures in Hong Kong. But what film are we going to take a look at this week, Adam? Uh, We're taking a look at an actual good film this week. Uh, So this is Road to Perdition uh, from 2002, uh, a gangster drama directed by Sam Mendes, only his second film after the Oscar-winning debut American Beauty. Uh, And this stars pretty much everyone. uh, Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, Jude Law, Stanley Tucci, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Kieran Hines, Dylan Baker, and importantly for us, Daniel Craig. So this film is the start of that collaboration between actor and director that leads ultimately to Skyfall and Spectre 10 years later. So the film's set in this kind of small Irish American community in Illinois in 1931 in the Great Depression. And Tom Hanks plays Mike Sullivan, who's kind of the main enforcer and adopted son of Paul Newman's character, John Rooney, who sort of rules over the community Godfather style. Uh, But one night, uh, Sullivan and Rooney's real son, Connor, who's played uh, by Daniel Craig as a really petulant, sinister psychopath, uh, commit a gangster hit, which is witnessed by Hanks's eldest son, Michael. Uh, And Connor decides he can't rely on the boy's silence. And so he tries to have Mike Sullivan killed. And he personally kills uh, Mike's wife and his other son by mistake. And this leads to father and son, Mike and Michael Sullivan, having to go on the run together to survive. And all the while, they're pursued by a a creepy assassin and photographer played by Jude Law. So the whole film's this three-way drama of fathers and sons. You've got the central pair who are united by grief and trauma and a kind of rediscovering one another. You've got Paul Newman, who's now torn between having to protect his real son and having to have murdered his adopted but slightly preferred son. You know, that there's a big sort of subtext of Daniel Craig feeling very envious of Tom Hanks because of that relationship. 
This film looks incredible. It's visually sumptuous and striking. It won a posthumous Oscar for the cinematographer Conrad L. Hall. It looks somewhere between Miller's Crossing and The Godfather in terms of that kind of sepia-hued period light and then its use of shadows. Uh, there's an incredibly evocative use of rain as well in a kind of crucial scene towards the end. Uh, Mendez's staging and direction is brilliant. It's classical, but all the compositions are very thoughtful. It's true visual storytelling and the sort of key violent scenes have the kind of memorable impact of Coppola's hits in The Godfather by, you know, blocking, which kind of brings out the character dynamics in all of them. Again, Thomas Newman, who composed Skyfall and Spectre, is on the score. It's a much more traditional one from him. It's a very simple piano score with some melancholy strings brought in, kind of like his scores for The Shawshank Redemption and American Beauty. The acting of this, as you'd expect from a Mendes film, is phenomenal. Hanks is just very cleverly cast against type as a figure who starts out as very grim and stern and unemotional, who has to sort of become what we think of Tom Hanks as being very genial and loving and warm. Paul Newman got his last Oscar nomination for this. He's one of the greatest actors of all time, and it's a phenomenal kind of swan song performance from him. Even Jude Law, who I think is quite overrated, uh, generally is quite decent in this. And Daniel Craig's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with everyone. He brings a real star charisma to this small but kind of key villain part. He's sort of a loathsome, dark Hamlet in it, which is really effective. Oh, thanks a lot for that review, Adam. Sounds like a very uh, intriguing star-studded film. Higher level than the other men from Hong Kong that we looked at last week. Uh, yeah, I'm shamefully, I haven't actually seen much of uh, Daniel Craig's work outside of the Bond series. So uh, after that glowing review, I'll definitely uh, take a look at Road to Perdition. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I've, I've never actually seen Road to Perdition. I have, I have seen some Daniel Craig films that are kind of non-Bond, but it's kind of more of his... Uh active roles if, if you like so things like layer cake and um and things like laura croft's obviously not not his best work let's put it that way yeah craig's career is interesting because he kind of pops up in stuff really before bond and then sort of since bond his out his other activities kind of haven't worked for him that well i would say like bond has been his sort of big calling card apart from knives out last year knives out was a lot of fun and he's loving hamming it up as the most deep fried deep self detective of all time benoit blanc but yeah, Road to Perdition, I think one of the best films of the noughties for me. And, it, and it's still quite underrated. It's not talked about very much, but it's a really terrific piece of work. Michael, open your eyes. This is the life we chose, the life we lead. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. Michael could. So it's on to our next segment. Yes, it's Phil's crazy bomb theories. These theories very much like Bond's CB aircraft sitting on the beach with Adam and I ready to take aim Scaramanga style. What do you have for us this time, Phil? So this week's only a theory is the bi spy who loved me. So it's asking the question of is James Bond actually bisexual? So it's the idea that although as we as you were probably going to mention to me, the fact that in the books, in the novels and in the majority of the films, obviously Bond is seen as the ultimate ladies man. The fact that, you know, all of his sexual conquests are with women for, throughout the entire 24 and obviously we assume 25th film as well. But we get an interesting um interaction between Raoul Silver and Bond in Skyfall. Now, Silver is trying to make Bond feel uncomfortable and trying to interrogate him on the island. And also he's trying to sort of outwit him with, you know, saying, oh yeah, your training can't prepare, prepare you for this. And obviously there's that moment where he starts to open his legs and, and move his hand up his inner thigh. And, and, you know, and Bond gives that remark of what makes you think this is my first time and, and things like that. So 
at the time of Skyfall's release, there were a lot of articles, you know, asking, is Bond actually bisexual? Is there, is there actually something in his history where, you know, he was also romantically involved with men as well as women? And it stands to reason that, you know, perhaps he was, you know, there's, there's nothing to say that Bond couldn't have had, you know, maybe romantic um, interactions with men when he was at private school, obviously, you know, as an upper class educated um, professional, you know, you get the sense that at public school, he could have perhaps had romantic engagements. Is, is that what you think happens at public schools, Phil, uh, like Eaton, where Bond went? It's just a load of boys together at a formative age, and so they all just sort of go gay. No, but I'm just saying, you know, you, you get the sense that Bond may have had sexual conquest with men as well as women, was my argument. Perhaps I was misguided to suggest public school was his first sexual experience. I'm willing to go along with this theory, Phil, but is there, is there any more evidence that you've got? Of course, we do get the, the silver scene. I got the sense that Bond is obviously trying, he's not in a very good position in, in that scene. and uh, He's just trying to get the upper hand. So maybe what he's saying is not entirely truthful. Again, Skyfall, there was a lot of talk in the media about the fact that, you know, could we see a Bond character in the future or a Bond actor in the future that was portrayed as bisexual could we see it where they have male conquests as well as female conquests i'm much closer to martin's way of looking at this and that and that line is just a line of defiance if it is referring back to anything it's probably the torture scene in casino royale i mean we talked a little bit about the sort of homoerotic kind of snm kinkiness to that maybe that's just the thing that bond is referring to and yet it's not an overtly sexual encounter you know that's kind of coming from le chiffre if it's coming from anyone i think in terms of future encounters it would be interesting to see bond bond obviously uses his looks to kind of get women who are on the villain side onto his side it's entirely possible he could use that same charm to kind of thwart gay villains if it were gay male villains i, I think as as far as the character itself is concerned this is kind of the joint fantasy it is the male fantasy of being with these glamorous women. It's the female fantasy of this kind of very charming, dapper, handsome, sophisticate. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of uh, fans who are part of uh, the Bond community and also the uh, LGBTQ plus community. Uh, so it'd be interesting to get their perspective. I know that we uh, we follow uh, License to Queer on Instagram, and they recently posted something uh, that said they generally have more affinity with the the female characters in Bond uh, but it would be interesting to see if they also did still have that affinity with the Bond character as well if he uh, if he did uh, partake in uh, in other relationships well first time for everything what makes you think this is my first time oh Mr Bond so it's on to the next segment which is delve deeply so this week we're going to delve into Italy and out of all of the countries we've explored so far this series, Italy has to be the favourite among the Bond producers. It's featured in no less than seven of the 24 official Bond films and will make yet another appearance in No Time to Die with Bond heading to southern Italy, Matiera, to be precise. And uh, before the pandemic, of course, the area had seen a, quite a spike in tourism in eager anticipation of the film's release. Uh, so I suppose a good place to start would be with Rome. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the episode was the, the location in Spectre. Bond gets a whistle-stop tour of the city before he or should I say the Aston Martin ends up in the, the Tiber River. And you can do the same thing, minus the ending, with the, the Love Rome Tours in Motion, offers a James Bond Spectre tour that will take you 
to all of the key locations featured in the film, uh, transportation via a minivan, so not quite as luxurious as Bond, but that allows you to book for up to six people, and you also get a martini provided in the price, uh, so those tours are offered daily, 8 to 10.30pm in the evening. In terms of the most popular Italian location, that'd have to be Venice, first featuring all the way back in From Russia With Love. Apparently, Terence Young spent just a single day filming there. And then, of course, we get the rather dodgy by today's standard rear projection images of the Bridge of Size with Bond and Tatiana, quite obviously, in Pinewood Studios. However, Bond does return to Venice in person and in style, as we've mentioned also in this episode, the outlandish Bondola scene in Moonraker. If you remember, he also has a smashing time at the Glassworks with Chang, the Vanini company does still run the glass showroom, but uh, due to several renovations, it's now pretty unrecognizable from what we see in the film. One place that is still fairly similar, though, is the lavish five-star hotel uh, Danielli, where Bond and Dr. Goodhead decide to put their suspicions aside and work together. They check into rooms 31 and 32, and you can also check in for around 400 euros a night. And most recently, Daniel Craig's Bond has an emotional trip to the city of, uh, of, of Venice with Vesper Lind in Casino Royale. They head over to the Piazza San Marco and the Sottoportico Le Colenne. You can still visit those ones, although you won't be able to stop in the hotel that's featured in Casino Royale because those shots were actually filmed in Prague's National History Museum of all places. Um, and so many other places, uh, of course, feature, and I probably can't fit them all into this uh, short five-minute segment, but briefly, we've got Sardinia in The Spy Who Loved Me, Bond staying at the rather aptly named Hotel Cala de Volpi. Uh, you can visit the Bond suite very easily because it's actually the, the hotel bar where they filmed on location there. We get Lake Garda in the opening car chase of Quantum of Solace, as well as Tuscany later in that film with the, the bareback horse race, which is held in July and August, if that sounds like your thing. And uh, finally, Cortina features in For Your Eyes Only, the area gearing up to host the Winter Olympics in 2024. And if you recall, Bond stays in the Grand Hotel. His balcony is situated in room 108, if you'd like to pay that one a visit. So uh, plenty of uh, plenty of Italian locations. One place I actually haven't never been to Italy, incredibly, and uh, certainly like to uh, go to many of these locations. Yeah, I'm the same, Martin. I've never actually been to Italy, but it's one of those places that I'm just, I'm so desperate to go. I think it's kind of the very top of my uh, bucket list for when lockdown finally ends. I've been to Italy a few times. Me and my fiance did an amazing uh, three cities trip there where we started in Rome and then we went to Venice uh, via Florence. So that, that was a fantastic holiday. It's like still one of, if not the best we've ever been on. Uh, and, and Venice is brilliant. Uh, we went on a gondola there. And actually what's interesting is that they have a sort of code for gondoliers to make sure they're not going to run into each other coming round corners in these sort of tight canals when it's very built up and you're not on the grand one. So they always do a little oi oi shout as they're about to come to an intersection so that everyone knows they're there, which Roger Moore does not do in the gondola. Like noticeably, there's no oi oi. I mean, he should have done it. It works so well with the Roger Moore accent, doesn't it? He also should have done it because he does slice a gondola in half. There's that guy who sort of keeps going, isn't there, as he's sinking while the kind of couple haven't noticed they're just still kissing and they've drifted off. I'll tell you what, Sonny, I'll give you 20,000 baht if you can make this heap go any faster. 20,000 baht! I'm afraid I have to owe you! Bloody tourists! 
So next up is Q-Branch. What questions do we have this week, Phil? Yeah, thanks very much, Martin. So it's a busy Q-Branch this week. We've had a lot of people getting in touch with us on our social media channels. So I wanted to ask you guys what you think is perhaps the most awkward or kind of cringeworthy moment that Bond has ever faced in the film so far. I actually plumped for um, the kind of closing scenes in The World Is Not Enough where Bond has to awkwardly share a kiss with Christmas Jones and then we get the infamous, I thought Christmas only came once a year, which is still perhaps one of the most cringeworthy lines of all time. It could be more or less um, anything Halle Berry says in Die Another Day, couldn't it? Especially in the scenes with Rosamund Pike. Did Mr Bond show you his Big Bang Theory? I think I got the thrust of it. Oh, Yeah, I was going to say, can I vote for the whole of Die Another Day? Just the whole royal premiere, getting all of those celebrities together, the royal family, and then showing them Die Another Day. I think I think the one I always find is, is just really on the nose is when Bond first meets Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever and she's changing colour wigs. And she says, oh, which do you prefer? And Connery just goes, well, as long as the collars and cough match. And then no one really says anything afterwards. There's no retort to that. It's just left there as a, yeah, he really did just ask about that. Like a Ricky Gervais office moment, isn't it, in, in Bond? Our next question came in from Richie Griswold on Twitter. He was asking, um, obviously, we've we've kind of been very positive about the Daniel Craig era. Um, do, do you think that he's left a really positive mark on the franchise? And do you think that maybe... Craig deserved a few more films in the role similar to what Roger Moore had. Well, I mean, he is the longest serving Bond at this stage, isn't he? So perhaps he deserves just as many Bond films as Roger had, but in the same time period. I think uh, I think we mentioned in our previous episode, actually, that uh, yeah, maybe some people moving away from uh, from their complete support of Craig in the role. And I think that's just because of how long it's been and, uh, and how long we get between each film nowadays. So, uh, yeah, I hope that the, uh, the long term legacy of Craig will be a good one and I'm sure it will be but yeah I can understand why people are perhaps uh, a little eager to to get to the next era yeah I think that's absolutely right and I think whoever replaces Craig is to an extent going to mean Craig's films are overshadowed and everyone's going to double down on this oh Spectre's awful you know Quantum of Solace is, is rubbish, which, yeah, it was. Uh, oh, they're all too serious, which actually isn't true when you look at them. Um, so there's already a bit of selective memory going on. But what you've got to, I think, realise is that, you know, he saves the franchise after Die Another Day. That was not a good film. His What he brings to the role allows the series to completely reinvent itself and not be overshadowed by the Bournes and the Mission Impossibles. And he's brought the series a level of critical and commercial dominance that it's not really enjoyed since the 60s you know skyfall broke thunderball's long-standing record as the highest grossing bond film at the box office daniel craig was nominated for the best actor bafta for casino royale no bond act has been nominated for an award of that stature and you know the series has started winning and getting nominated for oscars again so in terms of elevating the series back to being a real cultural behemoth, he, he has to be absolutely praised to the rafters for doing that. A bit of a sad note as well. So we recently lost the actor Yafet Koto um, at the age of 81, who, of course, played uh, Dr. Kananga in Live and Let Die. But do you guys think that he will be kind of most fondly remembered for his role as Kananga in Live and Let Die? Do you think that he is one of the, the most memorable villain characters of them all um yeah i mean obviously the first black bond villain he he does a really great thing with that role it's not the most black positive of films because of the black exploitation stuff and he does have to sort of 
do the kind of drug lord kingpin role, but he also brings a lot of dignity and genuine menace to Dr. Kananga as this sort of corrupt politician as well. And so it, he's brilliant in that sort of dual role. Uh, he's fantastic in other films as well. I mean, Alien, of course, he's one of the crew members, very famously one of the sort of more kind of grunt workers down in the engine room. Uh, weirdly, he was offered the role of Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation, but turned it down. He sort of didn't want to do TV because he was established in films at that point. I mean, that would have been, I can't quite imagine it, but I mean, presumably he'd have, well, not presumably, he would absolutely have brought that same dignity and presence and authority that he brought to Dr. Kananga to the bridge in the same way that Patrick Stewart ended up doing. Yeah, I would have quite liked to have seen that. We could have uh, heard him on Family Guy in later years. That would have been a bit weird, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, fantastic. I mean, I, as you already know, I love Live and Let Die, and I think he's one of the best Bond villains that we get in the series. And if you read uh, Roger Moore's 007 Diaries of the filming of Live and Let Die, uh, you'll know that uh, Yafet Koto played uh, quite an important role for helping some of the uh, the black stuntmen. So, uh, yeah, I think just an incredible actor and an incredible man. Okay, thanks, guys. And just to finish us off this week on a slightly lighter note, So Steve Holding got in touch with us on Twitter to say, has Q, in inverted commas, got any tips for the Cheltenham Gold Cup? Well, I think if um, there's a horse called Pegasus running and its owner is one M. Zorin, I think I'd probably put my money on that one. It looks like it's losing and then suddenly has a big burst of speed at the end, just goes over the line. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Thanks a lot, Phil, and it's straight back to you, actually, because you are the quiz master for this week's quiz, the race for the Cubby Cup. Um, I think I need an unlikely two wins in a row to draw level with uh, with Adam at the end of the series, but uh, what do we have this week, Phil? These are a mix of different kind of general knowledge, taglines and quotes that we've seen from the franchise. So, Adam, we're going to start with you. So there's four questions each. Adam, your first question is going to be a quote, and it's keeping the British end up, sir. So which film does that feature in? That is from The Spy Who Loved Me. It is indeed. So that's one to Adam. So, Martin, your first question. Oh, but it does better. (laughs) Oh, Sadly, no, it's not named the theme tune. So, Martin, you also get a quote for your first question. It's, I'm sorry, that last hand nearly killed me. That's Casino Royale. It is indeed. So we're one apiece. Rather easy question, but this is a tagline. So question two, welcome to Japan, Mr. Bond. Uh, Is that you only live twice? It is indeed. So that is two to Adam, uh, one to Martin. Martin, your second question. Outer space now belongs to 007. I'd hope that's Moonraker. I don't think he goes into space in any other one. <laughs> it is indeed. So we're two apiece. So that, but the trouble is they were your easy questions. So you can't complain that I've made them all too hard. We are going to get a little bit tougher now, though. Adam, general knowledge for your third question Inspector Bond searches the secret room at L'American and finds a VHS tape. What is written on the label of the VHS tape? Uh, it's something like Vesper Interrogation. Yep, it is. It's Vesper Lind Interrogation. Very well done. So that's three to Adam. Martin, your third question is also general knowledge. In Live and Let Die, what is the name of the voodoo shop that Bond visits? No, you think I should know this because I love living and die. And I do know it. I just don't know it at this moment. <laughs> no, I, mean, I do know it, but I've just gone blank. I'm sorry, Phil. So it was Occult Voodoo Shop. 
So I was in a cult voodoo shop, of course. So, Mar- so Martin, you're now, uh, it's 3-2, sorry, to Adam. So Adam, if you get this one, you've uh, won it officially. So your last question. So these are taglines from the Bond franchise. So this was the dead are alive. I'm going to assume because it's also the text at the beginning of the film that uh, that's for Spectre. It is, yes. So that was Spectre from 2015. So Adam, you have won this week. Martin, just it's just for, for fun, really. So your final question would have been, his bad side is a dangerous place to be. No, I probably wouldn't have got that either. <laughs> licensed to so kill, that, I don't know. Yes, it was. It was oh. licensed to kill, yep, from 1989. Adam, pretty much a clean sweep, four out of four for you. So you are this week's winner. And I, I believe, is, does that mean you're now unassailable with your Cubby Cup lead? I believe I am, yeah. No one can catch me now. But uh, it's my quiz next week. And so, you know, there's, there's a nice little just for laughs, uh, you know, scrap amongst the, the pair of you to be had. For the wooden spoon. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be with you again next week for our final episode of series number two. So uh, thanks everyone for joining. Do check out our social media pages in the meantime, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or our email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. So uh, thanks everyone. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. You guys should try it. It's the most therapeutic Bond impression you can do. Just a big stop! I'm just going to sound like Chewbacca from Star Wars. That's that's all that can happen with this. It's just going to be, stop! That was really then, good. That was very accurate. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here. R- wrong film. Wrong film. Oh, sorry, wrong, film. wrong one. <laughs>